Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Welcome this morning to worship. We're going to be talking about Malachi. And uh, we're going to dive into that. But uh, before I jump in there, I just want to just say uh, with, with Malachi, you know, kind of what I'm doing here is, is we did a little bit of New Testament. We, we, we focused on the book of James. And if you didn't get an opportunity to, to, to go through the whole thing, you can actually refresh yourself by, by going to our podcast and, and, you can, and, and the whole series is sitting on there. But I thought we would go a little bit back and go into the Old Testament for just a moment. And I, for whatever reason, uh, as I was going through the scripture and, and trying to figure out well, where do, what book, what do I, where do I want to settle on and, and talk about, I landed on Malachi for some reason. And I, and I couldn't get off of it. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it in there. And I started diving into the Malachi. And we're going to be talk, talking about this, this prophet. And uh, buckle up. Because, man, this is quite the book. And so today, as we jump into here, into this prophet, really I want to be focusing on setting the tone, right? Understanding who are, who are we, where are we going, what are we talking about, is in the book of Malachi. So, are you ready to go on this adventure? Yeah, three of you are. I'm excited about that, because you only got a car that sits seven, so that's good. All right. So, all right, we're going to go on our adventure here at Malachi, and in order to do that, we have to start in the year 539 B.C. That was a few years ago. And it was after 70 years of captivity in the nation of Israel. And finally, the words of Daniel and Ezekiel have come true. So Israel will be now, pre-before this book, right around Malachi, will be experiencing not their first, but their second exodus as a nation. Now this time, the exodus was not from Egypt. We know that story well. But instead, it would be from Babylon. The, the, the Israelites leaving Babylon. Now in Scripture, the second exodus is written a little different from the first one. Very different, actually. The first one is written as a historical account in the book of Exodus. We can actually uh, see that story play out from beginning to end as a kind of a chronological order of things. We know that story very well. Let my people go. And we, Moses marches them out of, the, out of Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. We know the first Exodus. There's a whole book named after it, in fact. But the second story is a little different. It's not written this way. It's not Exodus part two in the Bible. This story is scattered throughout the Old Testament. It's sprinkled a little here, sprinkled a little there. It's kind of just scattered about. And over time, we've had to actually collect and push together 
a chronological story of the second exodus of Israel. And this story particularly is told mostly through the voices of the prophets. The books that we tend to skip over sometimes because they are kind of out in the pie in the sky. You know, what, what does it mean by that? I don't understand. What prophecy? But in sprinkled among those is the actual story of God freeing his people again a second time. And so here we are now diving into this. Now, unlike the first ca captivity, the first time they went into uh, slavery, the second captivity starts with warnings, prophets saying, wait, we've done this before. Wait, there's someone coming. And in fact, we see prophets warning them bringing word from the Lord saying, wait, wait, we have to turn from our wicked ways. Otherwise, he will let our land fall. He will allow the oppressors to come and to enslave us. He's warning them over and over. And those are written as well. And of course, our history tells us that the kings of the time ignored their prophets. Oh, we don't, we've gone this far. We've, been, we've had a, a great kingdom as we are now among our own strength. But we don't need to listen to this. And then we know through the stories that they fall. So there's written warning. There's another one coming. The second captivity is also a story of a nation who chose, who chose to abandon the commands of their God, and to run their country with power, with greed, and earthly pleasures instead. This story. The second captivity is also a story of God's jealous love. And it's a story of his protection for those who call to him. Now this story, I'm going to tell you right now, is so complex that it takes generations to play out generations for it to come full circle to see where it starts to see where it finishes and for us today this story is something that we should be paying attention to something we need to put a little emphasis on a story filled with warnings and one filled with promises from God and this is a story told through second kings Daniel Ezekiel Ezra Esther Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and it concludes in Malachi. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to take a look into that prophet, Malachi, who is believed to have the final say both on the second exodus and has the final word in the Old Testament. Let's pray together. Father, we are now opening the book of Malachi, and we're just asking for your understanding. We're asking for, for what, what do we today pull out of this Bible, out of this scripture that you want us to walk out of this door with going, I serve a powerful God. Bring those words off the page. Father, I pray that through my study and through everything else that, that, that put this together, uh, God, I just, I just pray that only truth comes out, your gospel. If I say anything wrong, then correct me, Lord. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, now I'm going to be a little transparent with you all. When I started going into Malachi, 
I thought, what in the world, God? <laughs> Land, this is, what do you want me to pull from this? And I had to spend some considerable amount of time in what it is that you want me to pull from this scripture. And I, had, I did a lot of reading, a lot of studying, because let me tell you, if you were to open the book of Malachi just from the very beginning, on the very first chapter, on the very first page of the book, you would be entering into a story with absolutely no background, nothing. This author gives you nothing <laughs> from the very beginning. It is actually a little confusing because there is, at the beginning of this book, written by the author, there is no context, there's no history, there's no reference, there's no timelines. Nothing in there in the first. In fact, it just jumps kind of straight into the prophecy of the voice of God. And we have to, have to clarify that. Because you see, Malachi is a prophecy, but it is a, he is a prophet, he is a voice of God. This means that he's not given or the expectation that he's supposed to predict the future. Not, not, that's not prophecy. Prophecy is being a voice of God. When God is ready to speak to his nation and speak to his people, he has selected, hand-selected prophets to be my voice, to be my hands, to be my feet, that even the king himself doesn't have the privilege. It's the prophet's job to be the voice to the nation from God. And so here, when Malachi puts the pen to the paper, if you will, he's not writing from his, his vocabulary, his thoughts, his impressions, his opinions. He's writing on behalf of God himself. Pen, paper, God, what do you want to say to your people? And so he, that's what he did. He didn't waste any time at the beginning. He just went straight from God's voice to people. And that's how the book starts. But before we can actually, all of us today, look in here and understand why, why he was writing this, what was going with, before we could really look with an educated lens into this book, we had to figure out who is Malachi? Who is this guy? Why, why his voice? Why his pen? Why? Well, we have absolutely no reference of him in scripture, besides here. Very little. He's, he isn't a main character in the Old Testament. He's not like Moses or, or Joshua, all these big names that, that, that we, we see sprinkled time and even reference time and time again throughout history. In fact, we only see his influence really right here in this one book. The name Malachi itself is Hebrew, and it means my messenger. I mean, he took his name very seriously, it appears. That from birth, it was already determined that this man was going to be a messenger of the Holy God. Now the Greek translation, now this is interesting, of the same name, Malachi. Now Hebrew says, my messenger. In Greek, it is translated exactly the same. My messenger. Now, that's not very common. <laughs> very un uncommon, in fact. But here's the difference. Is that in Hebrew, it is a proper noun. In Greek, it is not. It is a title bestowed upon someone. It's a title given to an individual, such when you give a person the title of pastor or captain in this case, that you, this person would be a Malachi. He is a messenger of some sorts. And so because of this, 
this Hebrew and this Greek back and forth of a, of a proper name versus a title given to a person. There are, are many biblical scholars who go back and forth saying, is this a man named Malachi or is this a person given the title or the position of a Malachi? And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because Malachi, God's messenger, as speaking on his behalf to his people. And by the way, the debate is on that, that the vast majority all believe that he is indeed actual Malachi by name, by birth, the voice of God in this case. And so next we have to really understand when we're diving into a book like this, that for me anyway, when I'm looking at it, I have to know the time. Where does this fit into the timeline across the biblical spectrum here in the Old Testament? Well, Malachi, and it would be, you know, sometimes we think, well, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so obviously it was the last one written. And this, of course, would not be true because the Bible is not written in chronological order. None of it is written in chronological order. It is divided by topic. And so when the Bible was being placed and put together, it was all topical. They took the topics and grouped those together. Those topics came together. And so that's why new believers have such a hard time going from the beginning of the Bible to the end, thinking it's chronological. It is not. It is not. You jump like this when you're going in the Bible. And in fact, they actually publish chronological Bibles now. Someone took the time and stuck the whole Bible in chronological order. And I have one in my bookcase, and every now and then I'll just open it up. I just want to see. And you'll be in the middle of reading something in 1st, 2nd Samuel, and then boom, you're in Psalms. And then you're back in 2nd Samuel. You know, it's just, they, they, they stuck it back in there. It can be quite confusing. But when they took the Bible, they put it by topic. So when I look at Malachi, where are we sitting at? And Malachi, his written word, takes place 100 years after the exodus of Babylon. They've now been set free from their second exodus, if you will. They've been set free from their oppressor, and they've been living free for 100 years. 100 years of freedom from slavery. And a new generation by now has risen who has no memory, by the way, of the oppression. They have no recount. That, that, was, that, is, that is history to them. They've never experienced it. They've never had to serve another master. They have a whole generation who's just been free from birth. Much like a kid today in America graduating from high school who has no personal or emotional connection to 9-11. To them, it is just a history lesson. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? But this is the same type of, of uh, people that our Malachi is addressing and working with, too. Is a whole generation that doesn't remember any of that. That's not, that was their grandfather's time. That was like the Second World War. That was their time. Now we're digging on this time. And this is who the audience is. A generation of people who have only tasted freedom. And the book of Malachi is a look at, at how exactly they were using that freedom. Now, when they, um, when they let Babylon, the nation, when they left Babylon, the nation had, had hope. When they, when, they, when they left 70 years ago, 100 years ago by this time, when they had left 
and they were starting their travels, and they finally experienced, they were leaving with hope on their shoulder. They had been set free. In fact, I can imagine that generation when they were marching out. And unlike Exodus, by the way, unlike Egypt, where they was one mass exodus, one, they just said, get out, let my, get out of my country, and everyone just left. But here in Babylon, they did it in four waves. Four different waves left. So only a small portion left the first time, the second and a third and a fourth. Four completely waves that left Babylon to go and restart the nation of Israel. And when that first wave was leaving, they were filled with hope that we are finally going to be able to have our own nation, our own land, our own temple, our own. We're going to be able to actually express worship the way that it was written for our forefathers. And in fact, they left. This is interesting. Unlike Egypt, they left Babylon on good terms. They let them go. Here, go on. In fact, here, before you leave, stop and take all of your temple stuff with you and you can have it with you. They gave it all back. They, they, they're the ones that rampaged and took it all, and then they gave it back. And so now they have all this stuff, and they're walking back to the nation of Israel. And they're ready to, 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 to rebuild. And, and so they, they're leaving. They have hope. There's, the temple is going to be uh, rebuilt. They're going to be able to do all these things again. But I'm going to tell you, 100 years into this, starting with Malachi, that isn't exactly how it played out. The new generations that came in proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting only a hundred years after freedom, resulting in poverty and injustice rampant throughout the nation. Now, it is true in those hundred years, they actually did rebuild the temple. More on that on the next chapter. Sacrifices and feasts had been reinstated. They did bring back the worship structure of their forefathers. But the promises... The promises of the prophets before them were still far from fulfillment. They had not seen those come to the truth yet. Here they are thinking, we're free, the temple's been rebuilt, we're worshiping the way you, wor you want us to worship God, but they have not seen any of the promises that were before them, the prophets that were before them, come true. And what this did is it left the nation discouraged and disappointed is how we find the nation at the beginning of Malachi. They were discouraged and disappointed in what they thought was God's abandonment to them. We did everything you said and you abandoned us. And this, by the way, also led to the nation of Israel having an extremely, probably one of the lowest regards in their history for God himself. They didn't think much of him. It wasn't a matter of fear of the Lord your God. They just didn't care about it. They didn't have a high regard for their God. And so what they did is they let everything just run rampant. They just let it go. Who cares? And so here, Malachi, the prophet who's, speak, who's, who's going into this situation, going into this type of climate and atmosphere, he is writing God's words down to a nation who needs reassurance. Needs reassurance of God's love, and also a really good rebuking for their disobedience is where we find this. And the whole book, the whole book of Malachi is made up of these things, the whole thing. It's very short, it's only four chapters, but it's made up of six disputes between God and Israel. Six things between God 
in Israel. Now, most of these disputes, these things, start with God saying something to Israel. So you're going to see this from time and time again, that God is actually starting with a dispute. He's bringing something to their attention. And then Israel, almost in all six, is then disputing it that he's wrong. Disagreeing with him. You don't love us. You don't, you don't know us. We disagree with you. And then, it, then those disputes end with God having the final word on the matter. And so the first three disputes are chapters 1 and 2. We find three disputes there. And those are God's exposing, bringing to light their corruption. And he's rebuking them here in the first three. The final three disputes are in chapter 3. And it's God confronting their, confront, their corruption. He's confronting it. Oh, Israel, turn your hearts toward me. Oh, have you forgotten? And then the ending of the book deals with something that is written and called the day of the Lord. More on that later. Now, the book of Malachi, as already stated, starts almost immediately with the first dispute, with no fanfare of any kind. There's only one verse, one single verse to introduce the entire book of Malachi. Unlike me that just had to go through the context, the history, the timeline, the reference, this and that. Malachi just did it in one sentence. I could probably take a lesson from him. He did it in one sentence. That was it. He was able to accomplish his authority on this matter and his context with only one sentence because of one single word that he used in that sentence. He used, he, read, he wrote, and you can find this in Malachi 1.1. The newest NIV says a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. But the old text says an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And it's that word oracle, interestingly placed there in the first sentence, an oracle. Now, there aren't many times in Scripture that you hear the word oracle, or in life for that matter, oracle, man. And when I looked into that, I discovered that it is actually used so few times that it is only found two other times in the entire Old Testament. That's it, just two other times in the whole entire Old Testament. And it is the strategic location of those two other times that actually give Malachi his credibility on this book. His authority on this particular matter is just because he used that one word in Hebrew. And scholars were actually able to put a date on this book just because he decided to use that one word. And it was also because of that one word that we know who the audience is. We know who needed to hear these words because of that one word. So where are the other two times that Jews found? They are both found in the book of Zechariah. When he, Zechariah, used the term to describe himself to, as he was warning off the enemies of Israel, and you guess the time frame, after the exile. 
And so scholars, when they looked at through all this, they were actually able to determine and to decide that these two authors were living at the same time and most likely inspired by God to use the same word to describe themselves on the same topic. And so Malachi and Zechariah served nation of Israel together at this time, using that word. And so there, the people of Israel, when he started the book saying in Oracle, they knew exactly what he was referencing. They had already heard Zechariah say the same thing. Oh no, he's one of them. <laughs> he's coming for us. Which brings us to the first dispute. And the only one we're looking at today. The first dispute. What is the first thing? What could possibly be the first thing that God wants to bring to the attention of Israel? I mean, these guys are not doing well. They're not in good shape. They've just experienced freedom like none before, and now they have wasted it. Other nations are looking to them and saying, surely this cannot be the God of the universe. This is your people? What does God have to say? Oh, I'm sure he's got his sleeves rolled up. Is he going to rebuke them for the lack of attention to the newly built temple? With his bricks falling down for the lack of maintenance? Is he going to rebuke them for the lack of faith that they've been displaying for multiple generations now? Maybe, maybe it will be the pagan sins that they've reintroduced into Israel again. Now, this, this is not the first thing he brings up. The first thing he says to his people right at the beginning is, I have loved you. I have loved you, O Israel. You are my people. I love you. When you were in captivity, I heard your cries. I heard your prayers, not once but twice. You were homeless and I, and I gave you a home. You were hungry and I gave you food to eat. Israel, not only do I love you now, but I have always loved you. I have always loved, check the scrolls, go through your history and your scriptures and show me where my love was in evidence. But how does Israel respond to God's first comment here? His first word, how does he, they say, how? How have you loved us? Show us how have you loved us, oh God. I've loved you, Israel. How have you loved us? They're not looking to their history. None of them are. They're not interested. They're looking at only right now, today. We don't care if you love our ancestors. It looks like you don't love us right now. And if you did, then why is all this bad stuff happening to us? Why is there so much corruption and poverty and hurt people surrounding us in this nation? You don't love us. I'm not standing for this, and you'll notice that the tone changes a little bit. God is approaching them with the heart of love. I love you, Israel. But then he approaches them with a rebuke. Not standing for this, God wants to remind them of their history. You know, it's kind of, I can hear my, my grandfather telling me, pick up a book sometime, right? I, can, I, can, I remember my grandfather saying, pick up a book sometime. You'll learn about it there. He's reminding them of their history. He takes them back to the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. He reminds them that he gave the blessing to Jacob and not to Esau on that day even though Esau had the birthright by technically being born first. Why does that matter? 
Why does he re refresh their memory? They knew why. They knew exactly why. Each and every single one of them that were living in that land were direct descendants of Jacob. The entire nation of Israel is born because of that one moment. And without this blessing, there is no Israel. He reminds them, I have loved Jacob. I have loved Jacob. I have taken care and provided for Jacob. But he does right. But Esau, I have hated. Oh my goodness, he said the H word. He said the H word in the Bible. Now you got to imagine, when I saw that, I had to do some real searching in there. Oh Lord, what's, what have we, you hate? What do you mean you hate? I had to look into that. And the word hate here is not exactly quite what you're thinking. Or really how we use it. See, in English, we just really have one word for the matter. Hate. That just means I don't really don't like it. It means I don't like it a little or I don't like it a lot, but we just use one word for it. That's all. It's the only word we have. But here, this is not the hate that we're referenced to or God is writing down, but instead is that God, he never once did he curse Esau one time. He never cursed him. He never striked him. And in fact, Esau, according to Genesis, was a blessed man. That he was blessed and given and provided for. He had a nation. He had everything that was there for him that God blessed this man. But here we are now in Malachi saying, oh, I have hate Esau. He's referencing. He's refreshing their memory. He's bringing them back to saying, remember Israel because you could go down this path. That Esau became Edom, the nation, a descendants of Esau. And it was they, their ancestors, their descendants had decided that they no longer were going to worship the Lord your God. And so we have history through Genesis and Obadiah, whose entire account is about the destruction of Edom. And so he's reminding Israel, listen to me, I love you. Because what's happened to Edom, I won't let that happen to you. I won't let it happen. That these people have turned their ways, their back on me. I, didn't, I never left them. They left me. They stepped outside and said, we don't need you. And so when enemies came to attack, their protection wasn't there. That they took it upon themselves and their nation, their, their whole entire empire crumbled down. And he's saying to them one final time, here at the very beginning, that I have loved you, O Jacob. I have loved you, my people. He is telling them that you, that I chose Jacob to be the inheritance of the nation of Israel. You are my chosen people. You are my chosen people. And they're here. He's telling them how you're wondering, how am I displaying my love? You ask me how, do I know that I love you? You're standing on it. This promised land that has been fought for and given. The very land that you call home has been restored. The temple has been rebuilt. The land is producing. And you are my chosen. And God closes the first dispute here in the first five verses by telling them this. You will see it with your own eyes. And you, nation of Israel, will say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And he's reminding them that Israel is his chosen people. But he is still the God of all nations. So start acting like it, Israel. 
Start acting like it. And how often? I want to just say, that's just the first five verses, by the way. We still have the other disputes to go through. And they get interesting. God brings up some things. And I know many times, maybe we look at Old Testament and we say, well, it's hard to relate to. It's not the structure that we worship in or live in now. But I'm going to say, as I was going through this, and I started to question and wonder, how often do I battle God like this? Myself, within my own soul, and my own heart. How often do I battle God like the way the nation of Israel, that when God is coming to say, Paul, I love you. How? How, how, how do you love me? And there may be times in our life now, moments where we cannot clearly see the love of God. Where is it at? I can't find, I'm reminded just sitting here in tears, quite honestly, of the testimony that was given today. Reminded that God's love oftentimes looks like nurses who are taking care of you. That God's love comes in so many different ways of provision through our lives. Because now, unlike a nation of Israel, when he's looking out and he's, look, he's casting upon the entire nation, is saying, come back to me. But now he's looking at us in our hearts and our souls saying, you are the nation of Israel. You are. Go and bring this joy, this love, this reality to the world. Go and be the nation of Israel. And so here are our, we're in a hospital bed. And they're coming in and they're taking care of us. They're being the nation of Israel, singing, come thou fount. Amen. When was the last time I was Israel? Showing the world of the power of the God of the universe. Or am I oftentimes like the other Israel? who is always saying, how have you loved us? And we're getting too caught up in that. We just want to focus on what our blessings are. Where, where are we? What is it in it for us serving you, oh God? What is this about? But instead, we take God and we go and bless the world. We're called to be his hands and feet and to be an actual ambassador of light in the nation. I'm going to tell you, our nation needs this. Our nation needs this. Our nation needs God's people to stand and not grow weary and to be the example of Israel, a nation filled with God's people championing for the king of the universe. So I think here in the first dispute of Malachi, I think it'd be fair to say that each of us need to go and dig in our heart and say, where do I stand today? Am I standing on the side of God just sending me out into the world? I'm ready to go and I'm going to be the nation, your nation of Israel to the world. Or are we still now saying, how have you loved us? Ask this question because the next disputes are coming. There's a couple of things God's gonna dig in there and we're gonna jump into those. But let's start here in this series with the simple question of where am I? And if there's anything in our own heart and our own soul that we need to dig around just a little bit, or maybe, maybe we are questioning God, how do you love me? I dare you to ask him. Come and ask. Let him show you his love. Thank you for listening to Refresh. 
Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.